Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 16, Joshua chapter 11. I gave you a little preview of Joshua 11 last week, and we're going to begin today by rereading that chapter in sections. And we're going to take a few short detours today and see some foundational theological principles emerge within these historical accounts that form the basis for the book of Joshua. And further, we're going to review and discuss some fundamentals for understanding what we're reading in our Bibles and how to place them in a cultural context so that we can get the most from it in our modern times. So open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 11. And we're going to start at verse 1. Joshua chapter 11, page 253, if you have the complete Jewish Bible. When Yavin, king of Hatzor, heard of it, he informed Yovah, king of Midon, the king of Shimron, the king of Akshaf, the kings to the north and in the hills and in the Arabah, south of the Kinrot, and in the Shephelah and the regions of Dor on the west, the Canaanite to the east and the west, the Emori, the Hitti, the Prezi, the Yavusi in the hills, and the Hevi at the foot of Mount Hermon in the land of Mitzpah. So they set out, they and all their armies, many people, in numbers like the sand at the seashore with very many horses and chariots. All these kings met together. They came and pitched camp together at the Merom Spring to fight Israel. And Adonai said to Joshua, don't be afraid on their account, because at this time tomorrow I'll hand them over, all of them dead, before Israel. You're to hamstring their horses, burn up their chariots. So Joshua came against them suddenly with all his fighting men and fell on them at the Merom Spring. Well, after warring with these kings and potentates and it was those who, by the way, who had dominated the southern portion of the land of Canaan. Joshua now does the same thing to those leaders who dominate the northern part of Canaan. And it is the powerful and influential Yavin, king of Hatzor, who calls his neighboring kingdoms to arms to confront these invading Israelites. And as we discussed last week, this follows the pattern of warfare for the south of Canaan, Joshua chapter 10, in that it was the Canaanite kings who precipitated the conflict, a conflict as opposed to Joshua and his army. Right. Further, we read, we read Ezekiel chapter 38 and the first few verses of 39 that show this same exact pattern of warfare being used in that time that lies ahead of us in a battle better known as Armageddon. And the pattern is that the armies of those nations that do not wish to submit to the authority of God and who will determine that Israel must be wiped out are going to leave behind their homelands, their fortresses, their strongholds, and they're going to move their armies into Israel, into the valley of Jezreel. Right? And they're going to do that to attack the forces that will be led by who? 
Messiah. Okay. This will prove to be as foolish and full of destructive bravado then as it did a long time ago for the kings of first the south and then the north of the land of Canaan. And the reason these various Canaanite kings will do this foolhardy act of leaving positions of strength to come out into the open to fight Joshua and thus losing the military advantage of defending nearly impregnable cities from behind thick stone walls is because God says he has supernaturally drawn them into doing it. The Lord did to the Canaanites what he's going to do to the leaders of the world's nations in a time not very far ahead of us. He's going to harden their hearts, much like he did with Pharaoh. God will, fi will fill them with vengeance and rage and cause them to commit a suicidal stratagem of war. These nations will be unable to resist. They're going to be pulled like, like a moth into a, into a flame to their inevitable destruction at the hand of the Lord's hosts. Okay. Hatsor now was the prince of kingdoms and royal cities in the northern Canaanite area in Joshua's era just as Jebus, Jerusalem was the prince of the southern Canaanite kingdoms Hatsor had been a tremendously large powerful influential city for at least a thousand years before Joshua and the Israelite army was only now arriving in the promised land to confront them even though the oldest layer of civilization at Hatsor has yet to be reached already the godfather of Hebrew archaeologists Yadin has dated the lowest strata of the ruins of Hatsor to 2700 BC okay. now since we have and we will continue to incorporate matters of uh, archaeology into our class to aid our understanding of these ancient Bible times let me remind you about layers and strata okay. cities were built and, and, and destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed again and rebuilt again over and over again for millennia and most of the time these cities were rebuilt directly upon the rubble of the previous one now there are a lot of practical reasons for doing things this way Usually a major city was located on an important highway or trade route. So to move it somewhere else didn't make a lot of sense. Okay. A major city was also located near a dependable and substantial water source, sufficient in volume to serve the needs of a large number of people. And those couldn't be found just any old place. Okay. Often as not, it was the plentiful nature of a water source that was the original reason for a city to be founded in the place it was. Okay. Since city dwellings and walls were invariably made from a combination of stone and mud brick like this picture you see here at uh, Megiddo in Israel, it looked a lot like a chocolate layer cake. Okay. Man-made mountains that formed 
the foundations of, for the most recent cities were given this official archaeological name, Tells, T-E-L-S, Tells. And archaeologists carefully dig down through these accumulated layers and they uncover each one where there's usually plentiful artifacts like pottery, skeletal remains, clothing, weaponry, and so on that enables them to get some idea of the time period that a particular layer began and then ended in destruction. The technical name for these layers in archaeology is strata. Now, obviously, the deeper down one digs, the older the remains are in relation to the ones that are above it. This is not a phenomenon that's only in Israel or in the Middle East. Okay? It's worldwide because the same reasons for rebuilding a city upon the ruins of the previous one are applicable no matter where you live. But because of the constant warfare of the Middle East, and because it is the cradle of civilization for this planet, we find the oldest remnants of mankind's communities there. Thus, Israel is littered with countless tells. Only about 5% of them have ever been archaeologically excavated. Okay. The finding and definite identification of the city of Hatsor is a pretty recent discovery. And it confirms what was written about that place in Hebrew and Egyptian and Mesopotamian documents going back 3,500 years and more. It, Hatsor was huge, a huge place. Right? It was vital, it was complex. Okay? The city of Hatsor itself covered an area of over 175 acres. Okay. It was the major seat of government for that region. It was a superpower of a kingdom. Okay. It was much more than a mere regal city, of which there were dozens in Canaan. Okay. Therefore, its king, the king of Hatsor, was highly regarded. And his leadership was accepted by his allies. Okay. So we read in verse 1 of Joshua 11 that Yavin, the current king of Hatsor, sent word of the need to put aside their differences and these various kings should come together for war. All right? And he sent this word to Yovav, king of Madon, and some other unnamed kings of the royal cities of Shimron and Achshaf. Right? And also to some lesser kings that ruled smaller city-states in the northern hill country. Now, just to demonstrate the dominance and power of the king of Hatsor, we find that even the kings of kingdoms in the region of what's called the Arava right, and the Shefla right, um, heeded his call to come to arms. Right? The Araba is basically the long and winding valley that follows the Jordan River from um, the sea of what we call today the Sea of Galilee and the Old Testament was called the Kinneret right, down to the Dead Sea. The Shephelah is the foothills the transition to the coastal plain um, as we move west from the mountainous regions of Canaan heading towards the, the seashore of the Mediterranean Sea. Now, Canaanites from 
the east and west, composed of Amorites and Hittites and Perizzites and Hivites, also responded to the call to arms and they joined this enormous military alliance that quickly formed in order to fight against Israel. Now, there were so many soldiers in this alliance that verse 4 says that they were like the sands of the seashore. Now, this is a good point for me to remind you that the Bible contains many common sayings and idioms and Hebrew expressions. The scriptural words saying that there were as many enemy soldiers as there were grains of sand on the seashore is not meant literally. Okay. It's only an expression of a huge number. Okay. Remember this as you find that same expression in a few other places in the Bible. Okay. Now, continuing on this little detour. Many people have asked me if we are to take the Bible literally and do I teach the Bible literally and I always tell them yes I do but you know it's necessary to define what the term literally means when we're referring to Bible study I promise you that no Bible translation you have ever read is literal if it means a direct word for word transliteration from the original language because much of the time it would make absolutely no sense since different languages locate their verbs and adjectives in different places within a sentence in relation to their nouns or prepositions aren't employed at all or the tenses that we rely on really aren't even the way the ancients thought of them and many times they didn't even use them. Latin, for instance, tends to group verbs and, and, and adjectives together and then the reader has to sort out which noun and which verb and which adjective goes together. It's hard. Hebrew does not even have a past or a future tense. Instead, it has perfect and imperfect. And it's not the same as present and future. Most languages contain words that don't have direct word-for-word equivalents in other languages. But instead, they're totally unique to their culture. For instance, the word, the simple word we've all used in this class, shalom, in Hebrew, um, which is variously translated in our English Bibles as peace, or grace, or well-being, and a few other one-word meanings. In fact, is a concept far more than a word and and there is no direct single English word equivalent that can anywhere near express the concept of shalom further just like in English or any other advanced language Hebrew uses poetry and hyperbole and simile it makes abundant use in the Bible of metaphors the Bible uses a literary form called parable as well. And so when we interpret the Bible, it's necessary that we recognize which kind of these many literary devices is used by the author in any given passage. Otherwise, we can get so far off track in trying to determine what it's telling us. 
Now, not long ago, my wife and I were traveling in the car and she wondered out loud if we could stop at a certain restaurant. All right, one which I wasn't particularly thrilled about. But being the good husband, I agreed and jokingly replied, whatever floats your boat, honey. You know, that's a pretty common American expression that she certainly understood. And it generally means if it makes you happy, do it. But you know what? If our conversation had been written down and translated for use in a different language, within a different culture, my response to my wife would have been pretty confusing to the next reader. What in the world does eating have to do with boats floating? It's a very similar issue and problem when you're reading the Bible. Too often, very well-meaning pastors and Bible teachers will look at biblical Hebrew idioms, expressions, poetry, parable, prophecy, and other ancient literary structures and make no distinctions among them. And this can lead to the strangest doctrines. So when I say that I teach the Bible literally, that means that I research to find the literal meaning and intent that the author had in mind within his culture at the time he was writing it. And for us, that means understanding primarily the Hebrew culture at its various points in history as it evolved and changed over a period of about 1,400 years. I mean... The culture of Abraham looked very different than the culture of Jesus. 1,400 years is the time frame over which the various books of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, were actually written. Now, off of our detour, back to our study here. The combined military forces of all these Canaanite kings up in the north of Canaan now set out to meet Israel Not just with a sea of soldiers, but with advanced weaponry that Israel didn't possess. Horses and chariots. Now, Israel had faced such weapons when Pharaoh came after them. And now they're going to go up against them again. And headquarters for the Northern Alliance was established, we're told, at a place called the Waters of Merom, also known as Merom Springs. Now, there's no real consensus on exactly where that place is, although generally scholarship thinks that it was very probably quite near to Hatzor. Now, when we understand the enormity of the army bent on turning Israel back, and on the frightful weapons at their disposal, we can certainly better understand the Lord's admonition to Joshua, don't be afraid. And anyone with any comprehension of what kind of a formidable foe the Israelites were about to face would acknowledge that from a human, earthly standpoint, fear was a very reasonable response. But when the Lord says that this enemy will be handed over to you, dead, then one must decide whether to believe God or your own eyes. 
the Lord issued Joshua this one recorded instruction. Hamstring their horses, burn their chariots. Hamstringing an animal is just as one might envision it. It literally is the meaning of the animal by cutting the vital tendon called the hamstring that runs the length of the back of its leg. There is no repairing it. And the beast becomes totally disabled. By disabling the horses, the chariots become useless. And then by burning the idle chariots, one of the primary weapons of the enemy couldn't be put back into service in any near future time frame. Israel wasted no time and so rather than wait to be attacked they moved suddenly against the northern coalition as they were gathering All right, at their headquarters at Merom and apparently the enemy was a bit surprised by this bold tactic by Joshua let's see what happened open your Bibles again to Joshua chapter 11 we're going to continue reading at verse 8 Adonai handed them over to Israel they attacked and chased them to greater Sidon, Misrephot Mayim, and eastward to the Mitzpah Valley. They attacked them until none of them was left. Joshua did to them what Adonai had ordered. He hamstrung their horses. He burned up their chariots. Then Joshua turned back and he captured Hazor, striking its king dead with the sword. For in time past, Hazor had been the head of all of those kingdoms. They put everyone there to death with the sword, completely destroying them. There was nothing left that breathed. And he burned Hatsor to the ground. Joshua captured all the cities of those kings and the, king, uh, and the kings themselves as well. He defeated them with the sword. He completely destroyed them as Moses the servant of Adonai had ordered. But as for the cities built on their tells, Israel burned none of them except Hatsor. Joshua did burn that one. All the spoils of these cities and the livestock the people of Israel took as booty for themselves. But every human being they put to death with the sword until they had destroyed them. They left no one breathing. Moses had given orders to Joshua just as Adonai had given orders to Moses, his servant. And Joshua acted accordingly. He did everything Adonai had ordered Moses to do. Israel won in a rout. And of course, as the enemy saw themselves being annihilated, each of the king's various armies disengaged from the battle and they began to race towards home and the hope for safety of their particular fortified city. Greater Sidon was the capital of the Phoenicians at that time. Located along the Mediterranean Sea. And um, it was a royal city. Naturally, the enemy headed there with Israel giving chase because the royal city was where the, the army headquarters was always located. Where Mitzpah is located is unknown primarily because there were many towns in uh, Canaan with that name. Mitzpah means watchtower. All right, and every city and most villages had watchtowers. 
Now, displaying obedience to the Lord, Joshua obeyed God's command. And whenever his men captured a chariot with its horses, the soldiers maimed the horse and burned the chariot. Now, I think we should view the maiming of the horses and the destruction of the chariots in, in three levels as opposed to only a battlefield tactic. First, it is that undoubtedly the Lord wanted to deprive the enemy of their major battlefield weapons platform. Chariots were key to the Northern Coalition's strategy. And by destroying those chariots, not only was their plan undone, but also they wouldn't be able to rapidly regroup and thereby present a continuing threat to Israel who had no kind of weaponry to counter these, these fearsome iron chariots that could ride into an enemy and break up any kind of tactical battlefield formation. Second, is that the Lord did not want the Israelite army to have these chariots and horses for themselves. When I think about it, logic says that if, his, if Israel had acquired these highly trained horses and these chariots from their enemy, it would have been rather easy to capture some soldiers who knew how to operate them and use them, have those enemy soldiers train Joshua's men, and then Israel could have employed this advanced weaponry themselves. The problem is that Israel, being as human as anybody else, would certainly have done what they had done in the recent past and decide that they didn't need to consult God concerning upcoming battles with the Canaanites with such powerful weaponry as chariots at their disposal, something that only a handful of Canaanite kings possessed, it was obvious they could probably just overwhelm any enemy. The Lord was preventing Israel from dismissing him and relying on their own power and strategies, which was a certain path to defeat, but a trap they found themselves falling into quite often. But third and most important, it seems to me that in declaring the horses and chariots were to be destroyed or made unusable by men, God was declaring the ban upon them. The pattern seems too obvious to ignore. In other words, the Lord declared that under the holy war provisions, Chariots and horses were spoils of war that he was separating out and keeping for himself. Okay. The horses and chariots became God's holy property and thus Israel nor anybody else would be allowed to have them. And how is holy property, holy property generally delivered into God's hands? It's destroyed. I see the matter of the destruction of the horses and the chariots as an outcome of the law of Harem, the law of the ban, and far less as merely an excellent battle strategy, as was some of Israel hiding in an ambush in the battle for Ai. Well, once the battle was largely decided, Joshua then turned back. He wheeled around and captured the crown jewel of the north, Hatzor. He killed King Yavin, executed all of 
Hatzor's inhabitants and set fire to the city. That's pretty straightforward, and it was done according to the Lord's instructions given years earlier to Moses, but then the next two verses, 12 and 13, are frankly confusing. And there is much scholarly debate over just what to make of it. In verse 12, we're told that Joshua went on to capture and destroy the cities of the other unnamed northern Canaanite kings and kill all those cities' residents. But then in verse 13, we're told that he did not destroy any city that had been built on a tell. Now, if we take this in its plainest meaning, it seems to say that only new cities that had not been built upon the ruins of a previous city were put under the ban. In other words, the typical city that had been built on a tell was spared, except for Hatzor, which was destroyed. Now, I have to tell you that's very problematic. And I'll explain why in a moment. Verse 14 once again demonstrates that while the enemy cities and their inhabitants were set apart and devoted for God is banned as his holy property. The other spoils of war like gold and silver, cooking vessels, weapons, food, clothing, and so on went to the Israelite soldiers and their families as war booty. Then verse 15 says that because of the orders Moses had given to Joshua, Joshua followed them accordingly and thus was obedient to God. Well, here's where the problem lies. When we get into chapters 12 and 13, we're going to find reference that more than implies that indeed Joshua did not destroy all the cities he captured of either the north or the south of Canaan. Yet clearly, God told Moses and Moses told Joshua that all cities of the land of Canaan were to be destroyed. No mercy was to be shown because they were all under the ban. No exceptions. And we find those instructions in Numbers and in Deuteronomy in various forms, some that deal with cities in the land of Canaan, others that deal with cities outside of the land of Canaan, whereby total destruction is only warranted when the enemy refuses to make peace. Here's the thing. Despite the words that Joshua obeyed all the words of God to Moses, we see that this must be some kind of of overview and generalization because clearly that's not the case if perfection is the standard. Joshua did not do precisely everything commanded and we're going to find examples of that later on in Judges and even in Chronicles and Samuel that address this exact issue. Further, had Joshua annihilated all the inhabitants of Canaan is instructed. The realities that Israel then would have, uh, Israel has today, would be exceedingly different than they are right now. I can tell you that. Okay. They would not have found themselves facing the same enemy over and over again back then either, which they did. Further, modern day Israel. They might be facing some enemies, but it wouldn't have been descendants of the Canaanites. I like in the sense of verse 15 that Joshua completely obeyed Moses to the sorts of pronouncements that we see in God's favor of King David 
when he says that David was a man after his own heart. Yet we also see David do some of the most heinous things right, and commit very serious sins. And this plays very much into my approach to God's word whereby it's very dangerous and misleading to play the game of my verse is better than your verse. Okay. There is simply not a single standalone verse in the Bible that overrides all the others. Okay. We cannot pluck verses out of their context of either their chapter, book, or even their place and purpose in the Bible as a whole and then hold them up as the final word on the subject. Okay. They are pieces of a much bigger picture. They are directions to knitting together a pattern. Okay. Or as we get to the New Testament especially, the verses of biblical texts become demonstrations and illustrations and fulfillments of the ongoing, long ago established God patterns. Joshua's job was to conquer Canaan, destroy all the existing cities, kill all the Canaanites. The only alternative Canaanites were given was to pack up and leave Canaan or to do as Rahab did in Jericho. Give up their allegiance to their false gods, worship only Israel's gods, and join Israel. That they could do. By doing that, Rahab was saved. And all Canaanites had that option open to them. Now let me remind you very carefully again God's reason why this particular, particular enemy was to be erased from the face of the earth and all vestiges of their false religions were to be eradicated. The concern was, his concern was that Israel would be tempted to worship their Canaanite gods. And this would, by definition, automatically incur God's destructive wrath. Israel was not allowed to compromise and God was not about to compromise on the matter. And of course, later books of the Old Testament go on to chronicle Israel's growing taste for their neighbors' false deities and their fascinating and tempting worship celebrations and festivals. The Lord sent his prophets to warn Israel of what he had told them through Moses what happened if they went down that path. Right? And then when Israel didn't heed those warnings, we read of the eventual destruction and the exile of Israel from the land Jehovah had given to them. Disobedience to the God of Israel can be subtle. And its effects can often take a lot of time to be realized. But never think that somehow the effects will not eventually come home to roost. Okay, let's read a little more of Joshua. We're going to read Joshua 11:16 to the end. So Joshua captured all that land, the hills, the Negev, all the land of Goshen, the Shephelah, the Arabah, and the Israel, Israel hills and the Shephelah from the bare mountain that goes up from Seir to Baal Gad and the Lebanon Valley under Mount Hermon and he took all their kings he struck them he put them to death Joshua made war with all those kings for a long time 
Not one city made peace with the people of Israel except for the Hivites living in Gibeon. They took everything in battle. For it was Adonai who caused them to harden their hearts and come against Israel in battle so that they would be utterly destroyed. So that they would not find favor but be destroyed in keeping with the orders Adonai had given Moses. Joshua at that time came and cut off the Anakim from the land, from Hebron, Devar, Anab, and all the hill country of Judah and Israel. Joshua utterly destroyed them and their cities. No Anakim were left in the land of the people of Israel, only in Gaza, Gat, and Ashdod did some remain. Joshua took the whole land in keeping with all that Adonai had said to Moses and to Israel according to their divisions into tribes. Then the land rested from war. Here we have a retrospective view of the conquest of the whole land. Joshua took the portions of southern Canaan that had already been described in chapter 10 and he took the Arabah, generally this long valley that runs from Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea and he took the mountains of Israel that follow along to the west side of that uh, valley and he took um, the lowlands coming out of those mountains as it headed towards the seashore the northern extent of the conquest went all the way up to the foot of Mount Hermon way up here in the north now part of this retrospect the end of this chapter helps us to see the political and wartime realities that in such a monumental quest don't really follow a nice smooth road or a timetable or do they have sharply defined outcomes okay. we're told that Joshua fought for a long time in other words the major battles are the ones that have been recorded and they were probably the shortest in length of time. The longer and more protracted smaller skirmishes and battles over small areas of territory against lesser kings and lesser potentates would go on for an indefinite period of time. In fact, this is exactly as the Lord said it would be back in Exodus 23:29 when he said, "I will not drive them out before you in one year, which would cause the land to become desolate and the wild animals too many for you. I will drive them out before you gradually until you have grown in number and can take possession of the land." Our conflict with Iraq coupled with Israel's never-ending battle to exist, surrounded in a sea of Islam, who doesn't want it there, is an excellent demonstration of what went on during the conquest of Canaan. Who will ever forget that famous scene of President Bush mere weeks into the battle for Iraq landing a jet on an aircraft carriage of the slogan of Mission Accomplished? Years later, 
After Saddam Hussein was removed from power, while progress has been made and a new Iraqi central government is operating, pockets of conflict continue. Winning the major battles and projecting power and authority in a general way is one thing. Controlling every tribe, every village, every area, and every region is a whole other thing. There is always an ebb and flow. Two steps forward, one step back. There is always some local tribal prince or warlord who sees an opportunity for personal power and gain. There is always a nearby nation who has a reason to see to it that your nation isn't as stable as it could be. Almost immediately after Israel took general control of Canaan, Egypt started trying to make inroads into Canaan. The Philistines were constant trouble. The northern boundaries of Israel were always at risk, depending on the attitude of the current ruler of the various Mesopotamian kingdoms, particularly of Babylonia and Assyria. So at the same time that we must not be naive and think that Joshua did everything exactly as he was supposed to. Neither should we think that he was a failure, nor was he rebellious against the Lord. He did a very good job. He was loyal and trustworthy, but he was just a man. Right? With flaws and faults and that inherent evil inclination that battled against his good inclination. Perfection, you see, was never an option. If men could achieve perfect obedience to the Father, then the whole need for a Savior vanishes. Thus we have this interesting statement in verse 20 that says that it was the God of Israel who actively caused the kings of Canaan to come against his people. Why would God do such a thing? Why would the Lord arrange for Israel's enemies to attack them, especially since this was in no way an act of God punishing Israel? The next few words of Joshua 11 answers that question. It was so that these Canaanites could be utterly destroyed, which was the Lord's goal. But Jehovah affecting the minds of these Canaanite kings and tribal princes was also because Israel had made peace with a Canaanite kingdom that approached them with a desire for peace. Gibeon. And God did not want that to happen again. So he solved the problem. He put into the enemy's hearts a desire not to seek peace with Israel. Problem solved. Now can it be that in modern times, this same dynamic and pattern is still playing out among essentially the same ancient peoples. Can it be that the same ancient enemies of Israel living with Israel, living nearby Israel, are still having their hearts hardened by the Lord so that they do not do the very thing that would seem to be and their own best self-interest and result in such a good thing to most people of this earth to establish peace in the Middle East. 
maybe what seems to be such a good and worthy goal of the U.S. and Europe, the U.N., most of Christianity, and all of Israel itself, to find a way to peace with its neighbors is running exactly counter to God's will. Remember, God's stated goal concerning Canaan and the Hebrew people was to eradicate false gods and the people who were dedicated to worshiping them. And central to that goal is that those who are God's people will not be tempted into including those false gods into their own worship and thus setting themselves up for God's destructive wrath. I mean, do you see this? Do you see that peace in the Middle East is not really on God's agenda per se? His goal is to win. His goal is not to find a way to common ground or a peaceful coexistence with an enemy and a false deity named Allah or any other for that matter, but to in time draw these enemies out of their strongholds and into a final decisive battle with the Lord as the divine warrior. Of course, as with the book of Joshua, they think they are primarily fighting Israel when actually they are all actually fighting Israel's God. Armageddon, follow me, Armageddon is but the final chapter of the 3,300-year-old conquest for Canaan that to this day has never been completed. Even the name of the leader of the conquest remains the same. Yahushua, shorthand for Yeshua. The final verses of Joshua 11 explain that a very mysterious people who descended from Anak and thus are called the Anakites were also hunted down and killed by the Israelite army. And in the general region of Canaan, none were left alive. However, some did survive in the area occupied by the Philistines. In Gaza, Gat, and Ashdod. The Anakites were, are associated with the Rephaim, which is a, giant, a race of evil giants from before the time of the Great Flood. You can go back into earlier lessons for more in-depth um, lessons about these fierce warriors of old who are said to have come originally from the mating of fallen angels with human women. Well, in a nutshell, let me say that the term giant doesn't mean any more than an unusually big man. Okay. Perhaps as much as eight or nine feet tall. Goliath was an Anakite who lived in Gaza. Okay. There were, they were troublesome for everybody in the region, not just Israel. Well, we also find out that it was not until after the events described in Joshua chapters 10 and 11 that the, that the land within Canaan started to be officially distributed among the various Israelite tribes. And as we're going to find out in later chapters, it wasn't that it happened evenly or all at once. Essentially, tribes were deeded, so to speak, their territories. 
and the boundaries to that territory were fairly well defined. But it was that tribe's duty to take control of it and to establish and maintain tribal authority over each of their tribal regions. Some tribes moved very quickly to that end, others more slowly. Some tribes established a real dominance, while others had only the weakest of footholds. Some got their territory early on, some not until some years later. Now, after that, in verse 22, we're told that finally the land rested from war. But this was not going to be a lasting rest. It was only until the land was allotted to each tribe and then further battles would begin anew for Israel to solidify their gains. The Hebrew word used here for rest is shachat. Shachat. And the concept is one of peace or at least a lack of war. It indicates a respite or a cessation of hostilities. So we can say that there was a lull in the action for a period of time, likely while all parties had grown weary of the conflict and they needed to lick their respective wounds. Now in ancient times, wars were usually fought in between the harvests, outside of the rainy seasons, and at times when movement of forces was easier and other practical needs like farming back home had been met. So... If after several weeks the objective hadn't been met, battle was routinely put on hold while the other necessities of life were addressed. If a king had a standing army with enough resources supplied by the civilians, then that didn't necessarily apply. But Israel didn't have a standing army. Joshua's forces were farmers and herders and craftsmen, not professional soldiers. So every day at battle was another day that a family couldn't establish a field or a vineyard or an orchard. Yet battle was necessary to inherit what God had decided so long ago. Well, with the major battles behind them, conquering was now going to give way to settling for Israel. The land of Canaan had been prepared for Israel's occupation by removing those wicked squatters, the various pagan peoples who had populated that region. This entire saga has been a source of major heartburn for Christians for centuries. The idea of a loving God declaring the current inhabitants of Canaan regular everyday folks as no longer welcome and worthy of nothing but displacement or annihilation doesn't really jive with modern Christian attitudes and traditions of peace at all costs and turn the other cheek. Okay. But I offer you that the problem is with us, the church, not with God. For the Holy Scriptures are very straightforward on this matter. It's the doctrines of our religious leadership, Jewish and Christian, that have gone astray. Okay. We'll explore Joshua 12 next week.